0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, everyone, and happy Learning Friday. My name is Brian Martis, and I'm a psychiatrist in the Department of Psychiatry UCSD School of Medicine. And I'm really privileged to chair today's session on a very important topic, That is the role of nutrition and exercise in healthy aging in the context of today's theme, which is healthy aging in the era of pandemics. I'm very excited about today's session for many reasons, and I'll just share three quick thoughts with you. One is that we all know that nutrition and exercise are of critical importance for the health of our brains and bodies, and yet we know so little about them from an actionable point of view. Number two is that it continues to puzzle me no end that nutrition and exercise are not researched or included enough in our medical school and allied health curricula. And number three, I'm very grateful therefore for the wisdom of our organizing committee for including these topics in today's symposium and inviting two outstanding speakers, um, two outstanding experts in the field to share their expertise and experience with us. With that, we're going to jump right into these two exciting topics. Dr. Nichols is Professor Emeritus from the School of Exercise and Nutrition at SDSU and currently Lead Exercise Scientist at the Exercise and Physical Activity Resource Center, which is EPARC, at the Herbert Wurthheim School of Public Health at UC San Diego. She's also the Program Director of the UCSD Bone Densitometry School and Program Director of the Osteoporosis Bone Health Support Group at UC Health. Her research interest includes exercise and musculoskeletal health across lifespan, with the past work on adolescent athletes at risk for disorders of female athlete triad syndrome, and more recently on prevention of sarcopenia and osteopenia and associated falls and fractures among older adults. She has co-developed with her colleagues virtual uh, bone health and fall fracture prevention program called Strong Foundations. And which is currently undergoing final pilot t- testing with expected launch at the end of 2021. And I believe she's gonna speak about some of that today. Her topic for today is considerations for virtual fall fracture prevention exercise program in the midst of a pandemic and beyond. Dr. Nichols.
0: Thank you for that introduction. I'm really happy to be part of this panel and in this symposium and to be able to share our research team's experience with implementing a virtual fall fracture prevention exercise program. Um, And it really was in the midst of the of the pandemic. So I'll talk to you about some of the challenges and there there were several and some of the surprises that that we had positive, overall really positive. So let's then move on. The program I'm going to talk about is named Strong Foundations, but it evolved from this large clinical trial called the MEDEX study. It has since concluded, and I um, wouldn't be surprised that several people in our audience today were participants in this study. It was a two site trial, UC San Diego and Washington. Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, so a total of about 600 participants in a fairly long um, intervention trial that uh, looked at mindfulness training and exercise, and the main outcome measure in this study was actually cognitive function. So I was brought in as a co-investigator to uh, help develop the exercise program, and then evaluate it and um, et cetera. So the program was uh, six months, twice weekly, in-person exercise classes. Some of the uh, pictures here are, are taken directly from the program, and this was held at a local YMCA. And then after the six months of intensive, it went to a once weekly maintenance program for a year. And we had recruited participants in groups or cohorts of 15, and they were enrolled, started the program, and this was ongoing. And we were literally down to the, the end. We were in our last two cohorts of 20 from San Diego. Uh, WashU had the same thing going on there in St. Louis. Um, and it was the last six to eight weeks of the structured phase of the program. And then along came COVID-19. And as my little cartoon. suggests here, uh, the possibilities of what could go wrong out there are stressing me out. And certainly there was a lot of anxiety and stress all around. And for us, it was, what are we going to do? Uh, Of course, the gyms were closed, people didn't want to go out anyway, at, at that point. And we had to make a decision whether to Uh, just canceled the last two groups. That would have been about 10% of our sample. Uh, We didn't want to do that. Our participants didn't want to do that. So we scrambled and we decided to attempt to use the Zoom platform to do virtual exercise. Uh, Mind you, I had never done anything like this uh, myself. So we went ahead and did that. And the first couple of weeks were a lot of trials and tribulations there but it went on and we uh, finished and those participants then went into their maintenance and the virtual maintenance continued until the trial uh, ended just uh, shortly ago so we decided at eight weeks into it that we would collect some data uh, on the uh, how people felt about it because we started thinking once we got near the end that Oh, maybe this will work. Maybe we can go, you know, farther with this with with a different population population that I was really interested in, and that was I'm actually saying older adults, but a different topic. And so we used this uh, tool called the System Usability Scale, and it's uh, one that was developed uh, and quite certainly more for industry than for academia, but it was it's getting at how people felt about um, and how well they accepted virtual learning and so we applied this and so what you're looking at here is each participant in one of our 20 cohorts again this is right at the end after eight weeks in the lockdown phase of virtual training. And according to the authors of the scale, scores of seventy percent or higher are consistent with a, a program or um, whatever tool is being studied consistent with it being usable and acceptable. So we had an average score of eighty-two, and all but two people actually reached that seventy percent threshold. So that gave us a little bit of, lot of, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe this could work and then we sought some um, responses from individuals and i just put four different participants here in quotes from them but what i wanted to point out on this is that attendance and this isn't a fair comparison because this the zoom base was eight weeks versus four and a half to five months of their or in person. But attendance, even though a couple of these people really didn't prefer Zoom, uh, was near perfect. And actually, for the 13 people who uh, stayed in the trial in, in this particular cohort, uh, it, it was close to 100%. So we started to have meetings, talk more, thinking about, again, the population that um, is of most interest in most of my experiences in bone health and fall and fracture prevention. So we're thinking, well, who can we reach with this? And, and for all in-person programs, a, a great problem in exercise and community programs is trying to reach homebound individuals, whether they're homebound because of illness or frailty, or just lack of transportation to a community center. We thought uh, that would be a target for us. And then started thinking beyond San Diego County because, of course, we're not limited by geography. So we made some inquiries and, and certainly didn't study this to any degree. But we suspect that in rural communities is very few, if any, targeted programs for fall and fracture prevention. And then also our regular exercises who may benefit from more guided instruction specific to of Fall and fracture prevention. So we uh, decided uh, we 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 can do this. Let's do this. So we named this program Strong Foundations. And in a few minutes, I'll tell you how that got its name when you see the components of the program. But. We also right at about that time, um, we were fortunate that uh, to secure some funding from UCSD, the Clinical and Translational Research Institute, CTRI. And this was led by our medical director, Dr. Ryan Moran, who also has a strong interest in fall prevention. And uh, so this was really, the program was part of a larger effort to integrate within the UC health system, a fall prevention clinic to improve screening and assessment and referral for follow-up care to individual patients own needs. And so that um, has begun and I have a flowchart here, which I, I will not go through in detail, but essentially participants 65 and older when they're in the clinic for a Medicare annual wellness visit or seeing their primary care physician um, are going to be screened, and this part has already been going on, Uh, short survey yes or no responses to have you fallen in the past year, fear of falling, etc. And then that leads to group visit. And these are being administered by nursing staff, um, probably going to uh, expand this to have more interns from our lab um, involved in this. And then eventually, um, folks, participants or patients are then uh, referred depending on their individual needs. And that might be to orthopedics and physical therapy, or. Um, The say higher performing participants, at least at the outset, then could get referred for community programs, such as um, uh, the strong foundations. So this is in a just real in a nutshell, what the program is, it's going to be administered fully virtually one day a week plus a home exercise with video components in detailed instruction manual. We are just now nailing down the whole curriculum. It's going to be a 12 week program, um, but we did do two short four week cohorts to pilot test. And so we've learned from that and I'll share some of that with you in a moment. But the distinctive feature that we believe will set us apart from some of the many there's terrific uh, online programs terrific um, youtube videos for all kinds of different exercise probably thousands of them uh, we have vetted a lot of those and use them in a resource manual and some are excellent but what they're lacking is individualized in real time um, uh, training so we are the model we're using is to have a lead exercise instructor, a highly specialized uh, person that has done geriatric exercise. And uh, he or she, and, and we have one of each um, sex that will be doing this with us. Um, they'll have two to three assistants providing semi-individualized training using the breakout room function of Zoom. And so again, we think that's what sets us apart. So after the first pilot, and and this is, we have 13 people in that first four week pilot. Uh, We use that system usability scale again, how did they they like it? And mind you, this is only four weeks. So after people have been in programs for 12 weeks or six months or two years, uh, maybe their interest uh, starts to wane a little bit, but certainly for four weeks, these participants really liked the program. So 90% Uh, said that they indeed would be redoing this um, and would want to continue. So we wanted to get some information about class structure. So using this color code, green and purple, for strongly agreeing that the instructor wasn't effective, that the format was relatively easy to follow, and this really um, pleased us, pleased me, that participants indeed did feel safe at home doing these exercises, even though we were giving them challenges to their balance, uh, which of course had carries you know, some um, risk of falling. So we tried to minimize that fall risk, but maximize the challenge and they felt safe doing it. And then we asked about the participants awareness of the assistant instructors who were watching as the lead instructor led the class, and we didn't do such a good job of that and I think what happens here is the assistant instructors will look for uh, folks that have some uh, biomechanical um, doing something technically not quite right and they'll focus on trying to help them and some of the other participants then kind of fall by the wayside so we need to do a better job of that um, and, and and also if the uh, if you take a look here about their interest in or would they be willing to use a breakout room we also didn't do a really good job of. Um, you know, addressing that as we were working through the kinks of how do we make that work. But two-thirds of them said, yeah, they would use it. And then a few, not so sure. I think some weren't even quite sure what it was because not all participants in the four-week class got to go into a breakout room. Uh, We also, um, an important factor here is home exercise practice. This. It's really a structured program at home where they have all the materials uh, written and in video of the exercises. And we asked how many times a week did they practice this? And over 90% responded they did it at least one to two times a week. And a full 50% said three to five. Once more, this was only a four-week. Would that decrease over time? Um, perhaps, but we're happy that at least um, at at this point, they're doing it. So in the time remaining here, let me just give you sort of a visual sampler, if you will, of what this program looks like. And the name Strong Foundations comes from these are the three key features. I think these are the, the pillars that are going to lead to reduce falls and fractures based on um, the science that that has been published a heavy emphasis on posture and spinal stability balance of course and functional strength the national osteoporosis foundation has this very good poster that our participants will have we're going to urge them to post it print it and post it at home we will be training them in how to do the mechanics of these movements of everyday activities, so that it's protecting the spines. Some call these spine sparing, I call them spine friendly movements. And this can go a long way to protecting the back from pain. And there's also evidence that it can decrease the hyperkyphotic posture, the bent over posture that eventually just becomes it becomes normal and it can lead to vertebral fractures. So, heavy emphasis there, heavy emphasis on balance and mobility. Uh, these are pictures mostly from our MedEx trial where we gave a lot of different challenges. And when people think of balance, sometimes they think of standing on one foot but falls occur mostly when we're moving not standing so a lot of different gait practice movement challenging the surface we're on uh, the challenge of sensory systems so that they adapt to uneven surfaces or soft surfaces etc and then lastly strength exercises the pictures you can see heavy emphasis on lower body and leg leg strength and also on back because once the more once more uh, the literature tells us if you do resistance training for the back muscles you can actually in older adults can slow the loss of bone in the vertebral um, bodies so heavy emphasis there so then i will just finish with our this page of community resources the aging and independent services through county health department has had a program for 22 years now called the feeling fit club participants named their their group their club this is a picture from one of the sites they are pre covid they're in 28 community sites spread across the whole county Currently, many of the most of the classes are still virtual, but I was told just several days ago that some sites are starting to reopen for the in-person. Then Scripps Trauma Department sponsors workshops. Those also went to virtual, and they will likely open back up to in-person. And they also co-sponsor volunteer instructor trainings for another balance program called A Matter of Balance. And lastly, the link to our Strong Foundations program for anyone that um, is interested, wants to find out more about it, I'm happy to have you contact us and we will get back to you. So with that, I'll leave you with a beautiful look at Torrey Pines trails, and I thank you for your attention.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Nichols. With that, I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Dr. Mark rappaport Dr. Rappaport is a professor and chair at the Department of Psychiatry and CEO of the Huntsman Mental Health Institute at the University of Utah, and also the William H. and Edna D. Stimson Presidential Endowed Chair at the University of Utah School of Medicine. From 2011 to 2020, Dr. Rappaport was the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Emory University School of Medicine. His research interests focus on human psychoneuroimmunology, psychopharmacology research, clinical trial methodology, quality of life, and importantly, and relevant today's um, discussion, complementary and alternative medicine. He's trained and mentored innumerable students, physicians, research in the field of psychopharmacology, outcomes research over the past 30 years, and with that, he's going to, I'm going to uh, ask him to speak about his topic today which is inflammation the brain and omega-3 fatty acids dr Rappaport.
2: thank you very much for the wonderful introduction um it's a pleasure to be here today and it's a pleasure to to speak with you um i can't tell you how flattered i am that my good friend and mentor um, dr dill um, invited me to participate in uh, this symposium today um Having been an undergraduate, a medical student, a resident, and for a while a faculty member at UC San Diego, I really do consider it um, a home in many, many ways, and a, a place that I'm very grateful to for the wonderful um, training and education I've gotten. These are my recent conflicts of interest, and uh, these are my collaborators. Um, the best ideas come from working with many wonderful, intelligent, talented, and generous people. And I do want to acknowledge them. We're going to first talk a little bit about inflammation. Inflammation has become a really important concept in in health. Um, However, I think it's a a concept that at times is poorly understood. And by that, I mean the, the following. We need inflammation, we need normal inflammation, acute responses to irritants, to frostbite, to cuts, to trauma, to allergic reactions, to infections in order to heal and to preserve the integrity of our body. Where we run into difficulty is when we have chronic inflammatory states such as rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune diseases. And there seems to be linkages to cardiovascular disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. When you have a chronic inflammatory state, there are a host of changes that occur in the body. I just want to highlight a couple of those right now. One is the presence of depressive symptoms and fatigue. Um, others include um, problems with uh, the, inf- the immune system, in, in particular, Uh, real shifts in in certain components of the immune system um, that um, alter our stress hormones and alter a lot of different responses in our body. Another shift that occurs is that we go from a normal balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic tone to a balance where our fight or flight or sympathetic tone is enhanced. And the, this all can lead to really problematic um, concerns throughout the body, but I want to focus on the brain for a minute. In this slide, what you see on the left-hand side is a brain scan of a person who has Parkinson's disease and depression, and what the red there represents is increased oscillatory burst activity that is due to a decrease in a brain compound called dopamine in the brain. What one sees on the right-hand side is inflammatory depression. In this case, it was induced by a treatment used for hepatitis C and for um, treating melanoma, um, interferon alpha. And what again you see is the same type of increased burst activity suggesting a decrease in dopamine in the inflammatory depression. In this slide, what we have are a group of people that were recruited in with depression. And by measuring a certain stable, more stable protein that is a marker of inflammation called C-reactive protein or or, uh, CRP, what we see is that some people with depression have low levels of CRP, some have intermediate levels, and some have high levels of CRP. The other thing that these two slides show us is that in people with more inflammation and higher CRP, they also have higher levels of another neurotransmitter in the brain called glutamate. And so we're seeing with inflammatory depression in decreased dopamine levels and increased glutamate levels. And this increase in glutamate level is not only associated in in slide A with worsening depression symptoms, but in slide B, what we see is that it's associated, part of slide B, it's associated with a decreased motor speed, the ability to tap your finger rapidly. And in slide C, what you're seeing is that um, you have a decreased reaction time associated with increased glutamate. Um, in the basal ganglia of the brain. And indeed, what we see is there's a decrease in sort of cognitive flexibility associated with it. So we're seeing with inflammatory depression changes in um, neurotransmitters and changes in neuropsychological functioning. What we also see is a dissociation between the brain electrical activities in different parts of the brain, and in particular, the frontal part of the brain, which is really used for thinking and sort of controls um, other parts of the brain, particularly more primitive parts of the brain. In this case, the frontal part of the brain is disassociated um, from the basal ganglia, where there's that increased glutamate. So some people have inflammation depression. And these people have changes in the connectivity in their brain, as well as in um, discrete functions and neurotransmitters. And that's what this summary side talks about there. What I want to do is talk a little bit about omega-3 fatty acids, in particular, um, DHA and and EPA or EPA. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids cannot be synthesized de novo in the body. You have to eat foods that are rich in omega-3s in order to have them in your body. And omega-3 fatty acids are important because they're part of the the membrane of of neurons and cells. And also what we're going to focus on is that they also are important for decreasing inflammation. The first study I wanted to briefly discuss was a study that we did with Mass General Hospital, and we looked at 177 people, garden variety depression, and they were treated with one gram of of EPA, omega-3, one gram of DHA, omega-3, or placebo for eight weeks. We had hypothesized that if we were going to see a response to the omega-3s, it was going to be in those people with depression who also had Chronic inflammation. And what we were able to show in this study were a, a couple of important points. One was that the more your uh, BMI increased, the, the more excess weight you had on you, the more likely you were to have higher levels of, of CRP and other inflammatory markers, and the more likely you were, you were to have a uh, a dysregulation in um, hormones that are associated with fat, leptin and adiponectin. What we also showed in the study is, again, there was a really tight correlation between weight change and the number of positive markers that one had of, of inflammation. And it was highest in obese women. And it was a much stronger finding with 93% of obese women having a minimum of one inflammatory marker, and almost 50% having four to five inflammatory markers. The same held it with men, but the finding was not nearly as strong. What we also showed in that study, and this is a complicated slide, but what you see with the four to five marker group is that if you had four to five markers of inflammation and you were treated with EPA, you had a really large decrease in your symptoms of depression, more than 11 points. And this was associated with what we call a really large effect size. And effect size is a measure of um, really how different that the changes are from, in this case, either placebo or even from the other um active treatment DHA. And in this case, um, EPA at one gram a day caused a really profound decrease in these symptoms of depression. However, if you had no markers of inflammation, you did worse with EPA than you did with placebo. And we think this talks about the fact that you want to use the the right treatment with the right person and that if you use treatment shotgun with everybody, there're going to be some people where that treatment doesn't not doesn't work and in fact makes people worse. Anyway, this study led us to an, an additional study that was the first, um, experimental therapeutic study actually funded at NIH and the first experimental therapeutic st- study funded by the National Center for Complementary and Integrated Health. This involved our colleagues at NAS General and, our, and my team at Emory at the time. We looked at three different doses of omega-3 fatty acids, at one gram a day of EPA, two grams a day of EPA, four grams a day of EPA, or placebo. And what we were trying to see is, is there a certain dose that was better than other doses? And what we found when we were looking at a sustained effect over 12 weeks, which dose of EPA had most people get better, have at least a 50% reduction in symptoms. What we found was that four grams of EPA a day had a profound effect on the number of people who got better Um, with a significant reduction in depressive symptoms. What we also showed was that four gram a day that was associated with decreasing depressive symptoms was also associated with decreasing inflammation as measured by um, CRP. We were really interested in omega-3s for the following reason. What you see here is sort of, What happens acutely if if you get inflammation going on? Well, most of the treatments that we use, you know, you see all those ads on TV for um, infliximab. You see these ads for all of these different biologics. What these biologics are doing is forming monoclonal antibodies that then bind to and inhibit the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So what they're doing is inhibiting somebody from having a normal immune response, or in certain cases, an exaggerated immune response. But what that means, though, is that it may make you more susceptible to getting ill, Um, you know, if you get an infection or have something else happen. We were interested in omega-3s because what omega-3s work on is resolving inflammation. So they're not inhibiting um, uh, an inflammatory res- response, they're working on the other part. Okay, if you have inflammation, what? how does the body normally resolve it? And as it turns out, the major mediators of the resolution of, of inflammation are synthesized in the body from omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA. So we're really interested in that resolving of it. If one looks at, at our bodies in biosynthesis, the Western diet is very, very high on, in omega-6 fatty acids. It's high in processed foods. It's high in um, a lot of the meat products that we eat. And omega-6 fatty acids tend to predispose our body to produce uh, compounds that are called leukotrienes and, and things that enhance inflammation and stimulate inflammation. You know, all that work on the Mediterranean diet and the idea of of vegetarian diets, what those tend to do are those are diets that tend to shift you away from omega-6 foods and towards omega-3 rich foods like flaxseed, like fish, um, like seaweed And in particular, EPA and DHA produce these anti-inflammatory compounds that are called resolvins and myanserins. And so we were interested to see if you increase the amount of, of, of EPA a lot, as we did with four grams a day, what does it do to these pathways? And the reason why we're interested in the resolvins is that in animal models, they have antidepressant effects, particularly in animal models of inflammatory depression. And lo and behold, here you see that baseline placebo, the one gram group, the two-gram group, and the and then the four-gram group. And what you see is that once you add the, the you know the omega-3s, you get a dose-dependent increase in these precursors of the resolvents like H18-HEPE, which also has anti-inflammatory properties. But what you really see is a dose-dependent increase in these resolvents. And in fact, if you look at RVE3, you go from essentially none to a large number of these resolvents being present. Conversely, if we look at that Inflammatory pathway, the arachidonic acid pathway. What happens is the four grams a day of, of EPA ends up being a competitive substrate for the enzymes that are normally um, shifted towards producing inflammatory molecules, and the four grams sort of swamps that pathway and pushes it towards an anti-inflammatory pathway. What's called Locks 4 So we're seeing that the, the omega-3 supplementation at high doses in inflamed individuals um, are shifting a host of metabolic pathways towards anti-inflammation. When we looked at folks that were responders in that 4-gram group, because not everybody got well, but what we saw in those people that did respond was there was a massive increase in this pro-resolving molecule, 18-H-E-P-E, significant increases in resolvents E2 and E3, and a decrease, a really large decrease in HSC or P, when you contrast it to the folks that didn't get better. So where are we going? Um, One of the things I'm really excited about is that with um, Dr. Justy and, and his team at UCSD, um, we're engaged in a foresight grant application with the University of Utah, UC San Diego, and the Stein Institute, um, Mass General Hospital, and Emory University. And then um, in another um, study I have going on with Mass General and, and Emory, we're looking at augmenting Um, with omega-3s and treatment-resistant depression, people that don't respond to anything else. I really want to thank you for your patience with me today and and for taking the time to listen to my talk.
1: First of all, let me thank Dr. Nichols and Dr. Rapp for for their wonderful talks. And let's let's quickly move into um, the question answer panel session. We have about 12 minutes. Um, I'm going to start with... uh, a question um, to Dr. Rappaport, which is uh, by Nidhi Chabora. It says, um, the question is, how does resveratrol contribute to HDL and is there a connection with omega-3? Um,
2: that's a, a really interesting question. The, the resveratrol work does not directly impact um, what we've been doing with Omega-3, but it's very interesting work. And in fact, there is a very large um, center grant that was recently funded by NCCIH that's focusing in on this at um, Mount Sinai Medical Center. And I happen to be on the board of advisors for that study as well. Uh,
1: The next question also to you, uh, Dr. Report is: Is there a website to go to to learn more about inflammatory depression?
2: That's a good question. And as far as I know, there is not a website per se to do that. But one of the places where you can potentially go and look at, and learn about work in this area is to um, look at um, the brain, behavior, and immunology um website itself. It has a fair amount of, of content on that. And also if you look, I recently moved to Utah from Emory University. And if you look on the Emory University um, Brain Health website, there again is is some work on inflammation, both by Dr. Miller and his team and by Dr. Alan Levy and his team.
1: Thank you. Um... Again, for you, Dr. Rapp, or how do these, um, you can see that omega-3 fatty acids super, um, is super, is, is an exciting topic for everybody. Um, how do these specific EPA DHA results relate to more generic omega-3 capsules commonly pres- uh, prescribed?
2: Um, in general, the dosages of omega-3 that we're looking for, At in these studies are significantly higher than the doses that are in most of the capsules used today. So, for example, in order to get to um, four grams a day of of EPA, um, people were taking um, four capsules that were um, containing a gram of of, that were specially formulated for us to contain a gram of EPA a day. The other thing to be aware of is um, you have to be careful about with natural products about where you're getting them from and and which manufacturers you're using because natural products do not have the same um, good manufacturing standards that pharmaceuticals have. And so many times products will be um, actually made outside the United States and then are um, labeled, um, within the United States by, by various companies. So there, there are certain co- companies that are really quite reputable. Um, one of which is Nordic Naturals, um, for example, but you need to be careful about that. Um, because sometimes what you're getting is not what they say you're getting.
1: I'm going to speed up my questions for you because the omega 3 questions are are flowing right now so is there a special fish oil supplement you recommend because there's so many so many options i think you addressed partly but but yeah. is there anything else you want to say about that
2: yeah um i would I, I do we've done a number of studies with with nordic naturals and their products we actually have had to go and independently assay their products and also assay the stability of their products and their products have been very very good um although i didn't include it in this talk and it may take me a while to find i have a slide that summarizes the best resources in terms of natural products and and how you can check and see whether you know what brands would be best to use and um i will Try and send that slide over the weekend um, to Dr. Justy so he and his team can distribute it.
1: Thank you, Dr. Applecourt. In addition to baseline inflammation in major depressive disorder patients, what is the relevance of baseline lipid and uh, metabolic profiles in omega 3 treatment response?
2: Um, you know, uh, let me take a step back. Um, The baseline um, measures, I think, are are, are quite important, not just in in looking at at, um, inflammatory depression, but in looking at at inflammatory disorders in general. Um, The lipid profiles themselves um, may be valuable for a couple of reasons. One reason why is because um, HSCRP itself it increases with obesity and also increases with leptin levels. Leptin actually has a can bind HSCRP and and be a carrier molecule at times for it. So having those baseline measures are useful to get. The other thing that's important though about baseline lipid measures, particularly if you're looking at leptin and adiponectin, is that there are sex differences, and um, both sex and menopause affect. The levels of, of of leptin and adiponectin, and so you have to be sure you look at it within the context of sex and um, aging.
1: Thank you. A um, couple more questions. Do you think that type one diabetics with depression could benefit from omega three fatty acids?
2: I am not speaking right now from clinical data. But if someone has type 1 diabetes, um, it may not be unreasonable to try uh, uh, omega-3s. And the reason for doing that is that type 1 diabetes and depression is frequently associated with inflammation, one. And two, we have data now, a lot of data demonstrating the safety of omega-3s. And... In contradistinction to many other compounds used today, omega-3s have a very benign safety profile. Um, we have not shown them to, to differentiate from placebo.
1: Here's a question about uh, side effects. Did you find an increase in atrial fibrillation in subjects receiving 4 grams of EPA?
2: No. There were no cardiac effects, there were no hematologic effects, there were no no bruising, no bleeding of any type associated with it. There also, by the way, have been some very large studies in in, um, cardiovascular disease um, looking at high-dose omega-3s. And there again, they did not find um, a really problematic side effect profile and these were studies with with sample sizes in in the um many hundreds to thousands
1: acid reflux from omega 3 have you encountered this
2: um it it yeah it does occur with some people but it usually usually these are people that have sort of a, a sensitivity to acid reflux in general um and um, I understand the concern of the fishy taste of the, of the omega-3. Ours actually have a lemon flavor, so it, <laughs> people actually enjoy it. Um, and Thank you. But it's not, we didn't cause more acid reflux at all. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Now, very quickly, the last question is um, the benefits of standing, Dr. Nichols.
0: Benefits of standing? Yeah versus standing versus sitting uh-huh. uh, in terms of, of metabolic as well as in, in term potential for compression of the spine S- standing is better than sitting there's more compression and that's what people who sit many hours a day tend to have more back pain than if you take breaks but there's a whole body of science out there that has shown metabolic effects in terms of say glucose levels people who sit, hours on end. So there is a, uh, a national guideline on trying to um, get up every 30 to 60 minutes for a minute or two, walk around, do some balance, you know, do anything, but stay seated. So um, definitely better than long-term city.
1: Thank you so much. And we run- unfortunately run out of time. A special thanks to our speakers and special thanks to our audience for attending this talk. And- for your thoughtful questions. I'm very inspired to eat healthy and exercise from now on. Uh, Have the great rest of your symposium.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.